This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. The Jason Kavnis Experience is brought to you by Kavnis HR. Small businesses lose an average of $10,000 per small business employee and small business owners spend 25% of their time on HR. Time better spent taking care of employees, customers, and building their business. This is costing small business owners valuable time and money. Cavernous HR is solving this by delivering HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the U.S. through a voice-enabled AI platform along with a HR business partner. Cavernous HR Focus on your business. We've got your HR. Before we start the podcast, I want to remind you to join my text community at 830-400-4523. I am texting about HR and startups and entrepreneurship and other interesting items. Send me your questions on these and other items. So once again, text me at 830-400-4523. Now on to this great podcast episode. Hello, and thank you for joining the Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is Jen Thornton. Jen, are you ready to be great today? Absolutely. Jen has developed her expertise in talent strategy and leadership professional development over her exciting 20-plus year career as an HR professional. She has led international teams across greater China, Mexico, the UK, and the US to expand into new markets managing franchise retailers and developing key strategic partnerships, all while exceeding business objectives and financial results. Jen, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So first question, do you know the languages from all the countries you've been in? (laughs) I don't um, know all the languages, but what's interesting I found is um, you start to pick up um, words or you pick up um, the way people interact and um, you start to kind of be able to put a few things together over time. So Jen, um, your title, I believe says Jen um, Thornton ACC. What does ACC stand for? Yeah, so it's um, I'm an associate coach. So I am credentialed through the International Coaching Federation. And when I was looking at, you know, becoming a coach and thinking about the quality of coach I wanted to be, I really, uh, I did a lot of research and looked into the ICF and they really have the highest standards out there and the highest ethical standards. And so I went that direction. So I, I listened to a previous podcast you did with Maria. I can't remember. I can't say his name. Incontrico, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, you you were talking highly about Asia. What, what countries in Asia have you been in besides China? Um, so in Asia, I've been all through China several times. I really um, have enjoyed the culture there and learning about the history in Asia or in China, and then also Hong Kong. And so I've done some long term work assignments um, throughout Hong Kong and China, and it's just fantastic area of the world. I really enjoy it. So the different countries you've been in. Is HR the same everywhere? Like, is HR the same philosophy, same process? You have to change it based on the cultures and different items in each country. 
Yeah. So one of the things that I did is I worked for a United States um, company, so a US-based company. And so we wanted to replicate our culture, our way of work, our best practices, and we wanted to replicate that in each country. But that's easier said than done. Every country has their own laws, their own customs, their own beliefs. And so I think the things that are similar is the way we treat people and respect and how it's important to communicate and be honest and, and really think about about creating quality work and ensuring the right people are in the right job. So all of that is very similar no matter what country you're in and what country you're working in. The things that differ obviously are some labor laws and just customs and the way people might work. You know, something as simple as some countries really expect you to kind of say hello and check in on them before you jump into a conversation. Other countries don't necessarily want any of that. They just, why'd you call? What do you need? And so it's more of learning how to communicate and their special needs that way. But um, in the laws, labor laws, things like that are different. But at the end of the day, if you really think about great work and great people and great jobs, it all comes together around the world. Yeah. When I was in the army, I, me and my family were in Seoul, Korea for three years. Right. And whenever yeah. we had like an event with the Koreans, it's like, you're going to do some drinking, right? It's just part of the <laughs> norm, right? It wasn't no getting down to business. It's like, we're going to have a few drinks first and you know, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've had a few of those nights in China myself. <laughs> so how did it work? Did you go for like, do you go from Mexico, United States to China or do you just, do you go from one foreign country to another, like back to back to back? Yeah, you know, that's kind of, you know, the last chapter of my corporate year or co corporate um, uh, professional piece. It was interesting. Um, you know, you sometimes just say yes. And I remember I got a phone call from our chief HR officer and he was like, hey, you've been to China before, haven't you? And I'm like, yep. He's like, you want to go to Hong Kong for a couple of months? We're, we're going to open stores. We need you to help figure it out. And I'm like, sure, I'll go. And I kind of hung up the phone and thought, did I just say yes to that? <laughs> <laughs> and so I went over there for um, a few months and, and helped to get some um, best practices established. And then during that time period, our organization had decided to open stores in Mexico. So they were like, well, why don't you go to Mexico and do the same thing? Then we decided London. And then they're like, well, we'll go to London. And then all of a sudden, it was like, well, now we need someone to manage these HR teams around the world. And so then I was put into a permanent position of managing all those teams that I had set up. So in these different countries, is the perception of HR over there the same as here in the United States or do they think of HR differently? You know, that's such a good question. I think that um, in many countries, they look at HR um, kind of how we might have looked at it in that 20th century, where it was the policy police. It was when you're in trouble, you go to HR. Um, so some countries did have those beliefs, but then other countries, especially in Europe, you know, they really believe that HR was a group of people to really protect the, um, the mental health and mental and physical clarity of people and really protect um, how we did our work to ensure that people were happy and you know healthy and productive. Um, so it was interesting to see how different people looked at it over over the world. So Jen, after your corporate, you decided to become an entrepreneur. Can you talk about you know your decision to leave the corporate world? Because it's like you're having a great time. You know, you definitely traveling, having a lot of adventures, more than most people do, I think. So what made you switch from corporate to entrepreneurial? And talk about that journey you've been on so far. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you um, travel like I did, it looks fantastic on um, Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> and <laughs> I had some amazing experiences and I met amazing people. And I truly did love that job. But, 
you know, it came to a time where I knew I was at a crossroads in my career that if I wanted to ever go out and do my own business, that it was, I was getting to that age where I needed to go ahead and, and give it a try. And really working internationally and watching executives try to work together and, you know, thinking about talent strategies and how does talent strategies work across multiple countries and, and that strategic planning um, to make sure the business results come together. Um, you know, it's hard enough when you have executives that are all from one country and speak the same language. So when you have a board of executives and they're in different time zones, different cultures, different languages, there it really brought the complications to how people work together, um, it just heightened those. And I really became interested in how do we work together together better as executives so that the team does better work and therefore our business results come together. And so I decided, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to help organizations bring their teams together to create amazing talent strategies so that our business strategies come to life. And my guess, like you said, even though on Instagram and Facebook it looks great being in those countries, taking the actual flights probably got kind of old, didn't it? You know, um, I actually didn't mind them. I know most people would. You know, Dallas to Hong Kong, it was booked at, I think, 18 hours. It usually took like 16 and a half to 17 hours. Um, but it was a moment for me to really just decompress and relax. And I actually looked forward to the flights, believe it or not. <laughs> I got wow. to read books and catch up on podcasts. I mean, it was actually <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> cool. So what, what advice you have someone who's thinking about leaving a corporate to become an entrepreneur? Cause you know, a lot of people have great ideas. They want to do it, but there's something holds them back. What, what would you tell them? Oh, you know, I think what I've learned is you have to get up every day, no matter what is on your calendar and you have to go to your office or wherever you work and you need to do some work. When I first started out, obviously my, that first day, my calendar was completely empty when I was like, today I opened my business and it's an empty calendar. And it would have been really easy to say, well, there's nothing on my calendar calendar today so I can go do this or go do that. But what I did and what I recommend other people do is when your calendar is empty, take advantage of that. You know, who are you networking with? What are you learning? What are you researching? Um, what what type of um, education so that your experiences expand? And I think that, you know, getting up every day, making decisions right or wrong, just make a decision to move forward and using every minute you have of your workday to think about your business and how you can create it to be productive and help others. You know, that's, that's how you have to start. Jen, talk about this. You know, you hear a lot of people say, I'm going to start my own company so I, so I can be my own boss. So right. I, won't, I won't have a boss. Can you talk about, <laughs> no, actually you have like even more bosses, entrepreneur. Yeah, I have a lot of bosses. So every single one of my clients is a boss and I want to make sure I you know, deliver on what they expect, but really go above and beyond what they expect. Like I've always believed in great customer service. I grew up in the retail industry. So obviously, you know, customer service is always something I'm, that I found important. And so I truly believe you have to surprise and delight your customers. And those are my bosses. And so when we decide what we're going to do and what we're going to contract and what our objectives are. Um, I take that so serious and I look at how can I take what that is and where else can we add to it and what else can we deliver to ensure that the experience um, is, you know, good for everybody. But yeah, I wake up to emails from, you know, a lot of different bosses and not only that person you might have engaged with, but everyone on their team. When you're working with a team, you're, you're, you have to work with every single person. And so, yeah, so you wake up to a whole lot of bosses. <laughs> 
so Jen, we'll talk about this more detail later, but your company focused on talent, talent strategies, correct? Yes. Why did you pick that? Is this just your background you're comfortable with? Or why did you pick that to focus on? You know, early on in my career, um, I was, you know, working in operations and in operations, you wake up every single morning to your scorecard, you know, what were all your KPIs and what decisions did you make and how did that influence that next morning? And I was not a competitive person. I wasn't someone who always had to beat my peer. That's not how I enjoyed getting results. And I knew I always did it different. But I was always a top performer, though it didn't come from a competition type mindset. And what I was realizing over time, it's because I loved building teams. And I thought really strategic about how to deploy those teams. And really, really early on in my career, man, when I looked at who I was deploying and what time, what day... I, it was so specific because I really knew if I had the right people and I, I treated them right and I developed them and I engaged them, that all of our business objectives would come. And so that's always kind of been my beliefs and who I am. And as I progressed throughout my career and all these years and opening you know, new um, divisions with the companies I worked with or new countries, it always came down to how did we look at the talent? And when we failed, it was we'd failed around talent. And so it just became a huge passion of mine. And I thought, why not do it every day? So Jen, one thing that kills me is when people say, I'm a hiring expert. Like, no, you're not. Like, no, no, one's, no, like, one, me, is. no one is a hiring expert. It kills me. Feels like, you say so you're talking about all your hires, like still working for the company or getting promoted. Like, why do people say that? Like, I don't get it. You know, I think sometimes there's a little ego involved. And, you know, if we look at people and we say, you know, I'm a hiring expert and I get it right 100% of the time, what you're doing is really closing down the opportunity to be subjective about that person. And when they come on board, how are they doing? And what do they need to learn? And not only is that not great for the company because you need to be subjective, it's also not good for that person. You have to remain really subjective so that you can provide feedback and experiences and growth opportunities opportunities for that person. So, you know, I help organizations hire all the time and we don't nail it 100% of the time. We, you know, we do everything you're supposed to do and we definitely make progress and we definitely get better at it. But there's a lot of things that happen that um, make hiring not a perfect science. Yes. Jen, next, talk about your unconventional approach to building innovative workforce development solutions. Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of times when people think about talent strategies and they think about HR, you know, it's that policy police. It's just call the recruiter and get someone in here. And I look at talent strategies very different. I look at them as a as the piece, one of the most important pieces of the business strategy. And so, so many organizations spend hours and hours with their business plan. You know, what's our profit margins? If we sell X of this, at what price point? You know, in five years, here's where we're going to be. And, you know, especially if you're a startup and you're going up for funding, man, you have that business, pro- that business plan is dialed in, but no one ever puts a talent strategy on top of it. And no one says to make all of that happen, here's what's going to have to happen to the talent. And that's where I come in. And I think, and I really work with people like, what is your business objectives? Now let's talk about talent because the two have to go together. So Jen, from what you've seen, when the hiring process go wrong, goes wrong, who, who's to blame most of the time? Is it the hiring manager or the recruiter or combination or just depends? 
you know, it's always a combination, but I really believe it's the, I think it's really more the organization has failed in some ways. Um, and at the end of the day, it's always a hiring manager's decision. And so oftentimes organizations know the work that needs to be done, but they don't always know how they want that work done. And so what that can look like is I can be hired as a, you know, a vice president of HR at four different companies with the exact same job description, but I may only be a match to one of them. I'm highly creative. Um, I have um, a lot of adaptability. I like to try new things. So if I was hired in a company that was very traditional and needed someone just to kind of manage the day to day and they didn't want things changed, I'd be a horrible hire for them. That's not who I am. Now I could physically do all the work, but I wouldn't be a good match. And so, so often we hire people that aren't a match. I'm a better match to a company that may want to, you know, kind of restructure how they think about talent or a growing company that doesn't like to do things repetitively, that always wants to find a new and better way of doing things. I'm a better match to that type of organization. Jen, so when can we start thinking about talent strategy? Like when they close the A round, you know, when it says the two founders, when, when should that start? I think it should start the day you decide to open an organization. The day you say, I'm going to open a company, I'm going to launch this company is the first day you think about talent strategy. And it really starts with those founders because, you know, oftentimes companies, um, the founder is someone who was passionate about um, an item or a technology or an idea. And over time, you know, as the company grows, they actually move further away from why they started the organization. And they move into having to do um, tasks and projects and, 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 um, some vision and strategic work that may not be in their wheelhouse. And so I think that from the very beginning, if the executives or the founders of a company start to take care of themselves and where am I at and where am I with my mental clarity and how am I growing, then the organization start, kind of creates that culture and everyone underneath. And as you start to hire those start, those cultural way of work, um, that growth mindset kind of goes through everyone. One thing I think a lot of people get wrong, like, of course, what's that term? What's to always be closed for sales? I think a lot of founders get wrong that you should always be recruiting, right? I mean, yeah. I think a lot of people get that wrong. Yeah, you should always be recruiting. You should always be meeting people. And I, you know, just today, in fact, I was talking to a client and they want to hire um, a recruiter, actually, and they're having a hard time. And I thought about someone that I met at a networking event two years ago and they want someone really creative. And I thought, wow, this woman is like, she likes to break what works. And I thought she, you know, <laughs> she has to find just the right place to make sure she does a great job. And so I've connected the two of them. Now, I don't know where that will go, but you always have to be meeting people. You always have to be thinking about who, who fits your culture. And so that down the road, you can think back and say, you know what? I met that one guy at that event and I wasn't, we didn't have anything for him that day, but you know what? I think we do now. I just want to have a conversation, but constantly be meeting people and constantly be, you know, recruiting and thinking about the future of your organization. Yes. What advice you have for founders who like, they, they, they have an idea to start a company. How, how should they go about recruiting people? Is this a matter of going to network events, doing a personal brand? Like how, how should they go about approaching that? 
Yeah. I think the one thing they should stop before they go out is really stop and think about the culture of their organization. And that's a big piece of it because we can go out and hire experts in the field. But if we don't know about how we want that work done, then that's a problem Um, because then you'll have a harder time developing a culture. It'll grow organically. It may just not grow to what you want. Get purposeful with it. And then when you're out meeting people, constantly be saying, you know, hey, you know, in a year or so, I'm thinking about hiring a person to run my social media, um, uh, you know, platforms. And, you know, who's the up and comers? Like, who do you know that you think in a couple of years are going to be amazing? And just constantly be asking people, who do you know? Or when you're in conversations with people and they start talking about their passion, take note of that. And, you know, make sure that you're constantly staying in touch with those people. So Dan, as a company grows, can you talk about some, some challenges and differences to managing leading small teams versus larger teams? Oh gosh, there's so many. I think one of the biggest things I start to see when companies go from small to mid-size, maybe mid-size to larger, is they start throwing payroll at their problems. And so all of a sudden, one team seems to be really overwhelmed. And so we're like, we'll just hire someone over there and just hire someone and give them some help. But what we have to stop and think about when we get to that spot, when we start to grow is how do we reorganize the work so that we're, we know that team maybe needs someone, but maybe they don't. Maybe that team actually needs some additional training and they're overwhelmed because they're inefficient. They actually don't need someone else. Um, sometimes there's work that we start doing as we're a smaller mid-sized company and we keep doing that work even though it's not needed as a large company. And so I think that's a big piece of it is you have to really decide if you're a growing company and some of those differences is really how do you think about the work differently and how do you let go of work? How do you invite new work in? Um, and how do you really decide when you're going to hire someone? Because I can't tell you how many companies I've talked to and, you know, well, we had this, we hired that, we had this, we hired that. And then all of a sudden, you know, they can't afford their payroll anymore and they're very inefficient. So Dan, there's a comment I think you made on LinkedIn or somewhere I read the other day where you said a lot of managers hire people and expect from day one to know just as much as the manager does, right? Which is, of course, you know, makes no sense at all. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And so, you know, we go out and we hire someone and we've looked at their resume and we've done all of our due diligence and we're excited they're going to be perfect. And we expect that perfection to show up day one. And what we have to remember is that person is bringing their experience to the table. That's what you're hiring. But what you have to give them is institutional knowledge. And so they don't show up day one knowing how all the inner workings work or with those relationships to create efficiencies or you know the best new idea because they don't have institutional knowledge yet. And so when you bring someone on, you know, be thrilled and excited about everything they're bringing you. But don't forget, you have to make them whole by helping them also. So, Dan, I believe next month you're talking, in a, talking at a woman in retail leadership um, conference. I am. Yes. Executive Women in Retail Leadership. Yeah, it's a great conference. It's actually a month-long conference. Um, typically, those conferences are in person. But you know, in the year of COVID, we've all gotten creative. And it's an incredible um, group of women. And one of the things I love about that organization is they really... Um, they're fantastic at finding up-and-coming female executive leadership in the retail industry. And um, they bring them in and um, you know allow them to share their their experience and different types of um, opportunities. 
They bring in a lot of thought leaders to help all of these women who are leaders in retail think about their job in a new way. Um, I'm doing a workshop on um, communicating when you're in fear. Um, you know, we've all had a little bit of fear this year. <laughs> and when we're in fear, we have to be really careful how we communicate because we're communicating from fear at times and we can't push that fear on to others. And so we're going to talk about that in the workshop. So Jen, you know, in the news, you always hear about how, you know, how retail is going away. Is it really bad? Is it really that bad in the retail industry or is it overblown? You know, I think that it depends what sector. I think if you look at some traditional, um, you know, retail and a brick and mortar, um, big retail, I think there is some struggles. Um, you know, a lot of them are figuring it out. They're doing, um, learning how to do virtual sales. Um, the jewelry industry actually is doing a phenomenal job. You can actually have a virtual selling experience and kind of virtually go through, um, a, you know, a jewelry store. And I think that's just fantastic. Um, a lot of brick and mortar have thought about how do we um, work more with um, kind of social media and influence versus just waiting for someone to kind of walk in our doors like we used to back in, in the days of um, all of us hanging out at the malls. But the areas where I think are really interesting um, is the cosmetic industry is growing like crazy. And so there's some really interesting things going on there. Um, and then I think also um, smaller um, organizations, you know, um, organizations who are very purposeful and um, want to give back and kind of do more of a boutique experience. I'm seeing those grow. And so I think it just depends on how you look at the definition of retail. Um, you know, traditionally, are they struggling? They're figuring it out, um, but there's some really neat stuff coming. Jen, for your company, is it, you know, 50, 50 coaching and talent or is it like a different combination? How's that go come about? Yeah. And so we're really divided kind of in thirds. And one third of our organization um, comes from the OAD assessment. And it's a fantastic assessment um, that an organization can deploy for pre-employment to help make sure we're hiring the right traits for the right jobs. And then that assessment becomes a lifetime or a, a, a journey, a, you know, career journey tool where we can have coaching reports and we can use that um, to ensure that we're providing people with great experiences and, and really leading people to their natural traits. And then another um, third of the business comes from our leadership academies. We focus on um, helping um, you know mid to upper management uh, learn about um, leadership skills. We have a very specific um, way that they're built. They're really built to keep people in the business and they're built for adult learners and kind of that drip content where every month they're learning something and then it and it it builds over time. I think the days of trying to teach people everything they need to know in 72 hours in a in a hotel um, room as those days are over. Um, and so I really specifically built our leadership academies to deal with some of the problems I saw in corporate America and some of the challenges to develop people. And then another third comes from the executive coaching piece. And we have some amazing executives we work with. So Jane, for the leadership and the coaching, tell me who would be a perfect person for that. And then who would be your not so perfect person for that? Yeah. So when it comes to coaching, the people that do really well within our group, they're individuals who are doing incredibly well in their career. They are individuals who know no matter how good you are, you have to continue to grow and develop. They're very open-minded and they are um, they have a lot of spirit around um, creating incredible working experiences, not only for themselves, but within their executive peer group or um, their teams. Um, people that don't do well with us are people who want to stay in the past, 
who are fighting change, um, people who want to kind of show up every day the way they've always shown up and what got them here should be just enough um, because we really focus on moving forward and expanding our mind map and, and learning new things every single day. Um, so those are the people I think that work well and don't work well. Um, with our leadership academies, those are really great for um, small to mid-sized companies um, because you know a lot of companies don't have a learning and development function, and we come in and provide that. And you know, really think about we help organizations understand what's my business strategy, and so what do my what's my you know everyone on my team that are leading people, what are the competencies they need to know, what are the skill sets they need to know to make sure that fits with our business strategy, and then we. Come Come in with academies, and we help make sure that all of that stuff is coming together very strategically. Um, it's not just a um, you know here on month two, everyone learns this. We really strategically put it together to meet the business needs. Dan, is there a difference between having a coach and having a mentor, or is that the same thing? Oh, I think they're very different. Um, and I love that you asked that question. You know, a mentor is someone who has gone on that journey before you. And someone that you look at and there are traits about that person that you respect and traits about that person that you know you can learn from. And so you're really... A mentor is on a journey um, because they have gone on that path before. A coach is very different. Um, because a coach is a safe place. Your mentor might be your boss. Your mentor might be um, a friend or someone who, if you have a really honest conversation and you may have fears that later that will influence you know, you know, how people see you. When you're with a coach, it's a very private space. And it's, and it's a space where you can get incredibly honest about your frustrations or um, your excitement or how you feel about something without judgment. And so you can get it out of you. You can work through it. Um, you know, a, a coach really helps you kind of unravel all that stuff in your head in a very safe space. Jen, should a company have a different challenge strategy for hiring remote workers versus non-remote workers? Or is it all the same process in your mind? You know, I think there are some things that are similar. There's some core basics around, you know, making sure that we know what work needs to be done or culture or um, those types of things. But there are people who really enjoy working from home and remotely, or if it's, you know, not even from home, office space, you know, just wherever. Um, and there's other people who really don't enjoy it. And I think that it's important that if you look at a position, and this may be, you know, if it's a position where you can say this could be remote or an office or blend then have that conversation during the interview process. Um, if it is a truly remote position, then you know, look for people who have experience working remote or especially now, almost every, all of us pretty much have experience working from remote now. Um, but really talk to someone about what, what works for you remote and where do you struggle working remote? And making sure that all of that fits into your business needs. But it needs to be part of the conversation going forward when we're talking with people. Yeah. I like to say remote work is not for everyone, is it? Mm -mm, no, it's really not. And I've always worked pretty much remote. Um, so it feels very natural to me. But I you know, watched all of you know, friends and clients try to figure it out. Um, in this last year. And, you know, I, it was good for me to see that because it kind of made me step back and think, well, what I've naturally done isn't for everybody. Um, and how do we start to help people figure out how to work remote? And um, I think the biggest thing that, that managers have to get past when someone works remote is, you know, visually setting, seeing people set in seats. 
You know, just because someone's at their desk and their computer's on doesn't mean they're productive. It doesn't no. mean they're producing no. results. It does not. <laughs> no. No. But the way we've always thought is as long as you're in your chair, you're doing your job, right? And so I think that in today's world with remote work, we have to get really attached to the results we expect, not the hours we expect. One thing too, I think a lot of managers out there, they think, okay, they, I think they can manage the same as remote versus not remote work, work right? And also I think, you know, if you're a bad manager, you're a bad manager, right? It doesn't matter if you're remote, not remote. If you're a bad leader, bad manager, bad boss, it, it, you're just bad, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it depends on those, the skills you struggle with. If you struggle with communication and you now go remote, there's a good chance that that really becomes even more of a struggle for you. Um, if you're, um, if you struggle because you micromanage or you, you know, you're too in the detail and don't allow people to make their own decisions, then working remote, that person may feel really off kilter because they're not right there in people's business anymore. And so if you struggle with something, really think about how that struggle changes. Changes um, because we all have that one thing that we're just not great at. I mean, everyone's got it. Um, that thing we're always working on. But think about how does the remote um, situation influence that one thing that you're always making sure that you're watching and developing. And let's have to, if I can poise too, I, I'll tell people, you know, if you get a text email from your boss, like at nine in the morning, don't wait till nine o'clock at night to reply, right? Like yeah, be, no. be, be, be responsive and it works both mm-hmm. ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you work remote, responsiveness is very important because again, someone just can't look out the window and say, oh, I see them over there. I'll ask them on the way to get my coffee. Um, and so using technology, whether that be, you know, um, an instant mess, internal instant message, is that Teams, if it's Slack, if it's text messaging, I mean, there's a million ways we could do it. Um, but just be really responsive and really, um, Make sure that your supervisors knows the hours that you will be at your desk and be consistent with that. And so if you are having to possibly homeschool your children and so, you know, maybe, you know, you're having to um, kind of step away between the hours of 7.30 and 11, I don't know. Um, make sure that your boss knows that you'll be in and out during that time period. But from 11 to maybe 6.30 at night, you are on and that is your 100% focused. And make sure that people know because you don't want people to make assumptions if you don't respond right away. That's a great point. Everyone says, I don't do remote work. Oh, wait, I didn't say remote work and be a teacher, be a housekeeper, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. And I think that's what's so hard about, you know, a lot of people who, you know, had the experience of working remote for the first time and during COVID, they might not have truly gotten the experience because they were maybe homeschooling, you know, we're dealing with a pandemic, we're dealing with the health of our loved ones and all these new ways of working and how are we going to get our groceries delivered and who's going to deliver them. Um, And so they may not have really gotten the true experience of what remote working looks like. So if, if you did remote working this year for the first time and you're like, I'm not sure, just remember there was a lot (laughs) on top of that. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So Jen, let's talk about something you have a passion for. Passing for and that's historic preservation. Yeah. How did you get interested interested in that? How long have you been doing that? Yeah. So historic preservation. Um, I um I still live in my same house I bought um when I was, you know, in my twenties. And um it was a historic house. And so I'm like gonna go buy my first house. Um, you know, only knew very little about buying a house. And everyone was like, you bought a historic house. Do you know what that means? And I'm like, it no, but it sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. so thinking, you don't have money you got to put in there to keep it up. 
Yeah. Do you know what custom wood windows cost? Um, So I had no idea what that meant. And I didn't have any idea of why you should even preserve history from a structural standpoint. And so, um, you know, here I am in a historic house and um, I start learning about my neighborhood. And, you know, I'm in Dallas and the neighborhood I live in um, is an older neighborhood. Um, You know, it was started out the neighborhood I live in, Lake Cliff. It started out as a resort. Um, for Dallas. It was actually has a hotel and a resort and and our little park. There was amusement rides, all kinds of stuff. And so I started learning the stories of neighborhoods and um, it became a real passion of mine. And how do we, how do we protect um, history? Just like, you know, we protect um, our written word in history, but how do we protect what we see, you know, and um, you know, you go into a museum and you're fascinated by maybe tools or clothing or um, just the way someone lived. But we have structures all over our country and all over the world that are telling the same story. You just can't put them inside of a museum. So how do you start to protect those and tell the story? So, um, so yeah, so I am really involved in historic preservation. Sometimes it gets me a little bit of trouble. Um, but um, I really believe in um, protecting um, architecture for our future generations. So what makes a structure eligible to be historically preserved? It has to be a certain age, a certain, a certain age, has something that has, something that has to be having a historic significance in the building. How does that work? Well, you know, a lot of people define it in a million different ways. You know, a lot of it is what people believe. Um, you know, what I believe is that you look at maybe um, as, you know, because we're living in history right now. And I think that's what people forget, too. Um, and so if I was to look around today and think about what would I want to preserve in 100 years based on what was built today? And so you really have to think about maybe an influential architect and their structures or um, a new type of dwelling that changed the way we lived as a country. So um, I think of townhomes, you know, townhomes are becoming incredibly popular. So looking at some of those really progressive first um, generation townhomes, because it changed the way we lived, you know, it, we started living in a place where we didn't have yards. And so then how did we spend our spare time that changed? And so really thinking about a structure as, um, you know, how it influenced um, our way of life. Um, and maybe how it influenced um, design um, and those types of things. And then you think about old stuff and obviously, you know, any building that, you know, has historical significance if someone lived there or visited there or historic significance around um, architecture. But I think you forget we're living in history right now. And Jen, you just do this in a Dallas area? Yeah. So I, I um, focus very um, much um, in the um, Dallas downtown area where we have a lot of historic neighborhoods um, and um, they've got great stories. You know, every neighborhood was founded by someone for some reason. And um, it's really fascinating to go back and think about that. And um, oftentimes in our neighborhood, in fact, it just happened the other day, we'll get a knock at the door at one of our houses and someone will say, my great grandparents lived in this house when they got married. Here's a picture of them. And and it's a picture of their, you know, great grandparents in front of one of these houses. And we're just fascinated by that because you, you think about all the family and the love that builds up over time in a structure. Um, but it just happened the other day to one of our neighbors. And so we all celebrated because we think it's so fun when we, when we hear those stories. Can you talk about a project you're working on right now? Um, so one of the things I'm doing right now, which is really interesting, is I'm actually building a new structure and um, in the Austin area. 
And I've never lived in a new structure and I've never wanted to live in a new structure. <laughs> and so I've really torn, but for you know specific reasons with my husband and things, we decided to buy land um, on Lake Travis um, for retirement purposes. And so I um, specifically picked out an architect who designs new homes that look like old houses. And I told them, I'm like, I want to build a new house that looks like an old house that's been updated. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is really going and thinking about um, what do houses look like in that time period that you enjoy and how do you build that new? Because um, I don't like new home styles. I don't like open concepts. I, I enjoy rooms and walls and you know, I, I have a very specific library. I'm a big reader. We're going to have a library and very specific the reason why I wanted to build the library the way it was. So that's been an interesting project to kind of replicate historic um, uh, traits of a home inside of a new build. Dan, so we talked about your company a little bit. Can you go into more, like, more greater detail? Like, why did you start the company? What's going on with your company now? And what's your vision for your company in the future? Yeah. So, you know, I started the company because I really wanted organizations um, to be able to think about their talent strategy. Um, and it goes deeper than just business results, but that's what it is. You know, talent strategies will get us to our business results. But what I also know is that if our leaders are better to everyone who works for them and they have a better experience during the workday and they feel purposeful and respected and they're learning, when they go home and enter the house with their family, they're better for for their family. And when you're better for your family than your children or your spouse or anyone who's you know living around you, whether it's your friends or family, they have a better experience. And when you have a horrible day at work and your boss has been rude to you and you don't even know why you do what you do, you go home and you don't have a great experience and your family doesn't get the best of you. And so I think that um, you know I started the company kind of on that surface of helping organizations, but what I'm realizing is we're helping society. The better leaders we are, the better the society is. Um, and so that's kind of why you know where I'm at. Where we're going is we're building out our um, coaching models and we're building out our um, our coaches, and you know really making sure that we have coaches that have similar um, beliefs and values in the way we look at leadership. And we're building out additional um, programs um, for development and making sure that we're developing people for the new way of work and not looking back, but really looking forward. And what are those competencies and way of work we have to learn today to be successful in the future? And so who's your target demographic? Is it a certain industry, certain size company, certain amount of yearly revenue? Yeah, so we work with all kinds of companies. You know, um, we work with a lot of retail, restaurants, communication, and startup. Um, we work really well with companies who have multiple units. You know, a company that may have four small divisions across the country. And I think why we do well with them is because you know that's my background. Is I've always led um, retail industries, and you know we've never all been in one place. We've always been kind of scattered. And how do you lead from afar? Because it's very different than leading inside of, you know, one box where you see everyone every day. Um, and so those are the kind of companies, you know, and I love startups because if you can get your culture and the way of work and um, how you hire and who you hire and really create a company that's about um, growth in the beginning, then going forward 5, 10, 15, 20 years out, you're going to have an incredible organization. So that's why I love startups because like, let's just start in the beginning and do this right. 
Um, and so, you know, I work with organizations. Um, I work with larger companies all the way to some small stuff. I have some, or I have some companies I work with with 50 employees. I have some that have five, six, 7,000 employees. Is there such a thing as a company approaching you too early in the process to start working with you? Um, no, I mean, if you are, you know, thinking about even starting a company, you know, really start to think about what's your talent strategy. Um, even if you're thinking, well, you know, for the next three years, it's only going to be five of us. Well, but when those three years are up, what decisions will you make? And so it's never too early. Um, you know, the earlier, the better, just because it'll start to make you look at your business so different when you think about the people you're going to do it with. And when you get up every day and you know the people you're going to work with and you're excited to work with them, they inspire you. You know, your team inspires you to be a better leader. And when you build that, um, it's just a lot more enjoyable. And has COVID affected you in any kind of way? You know, um, COVID did in the beginning, obviously, you know, with all the programs and education, we put everything on hold. And what I did in that time period, because again, I could have very easily said, well, things are on hold, my calendar is empty, what am I going to do? Um, but I thought about how do I give back in this time of need? And um, I can't, you know, no one wants me sewing face masks. I don't know medical training. What in the world am I going to do, right? Um, and so what I decided is what do I do best and how do I give back? And that's, you know, I love doing leadership development. And so I actually put together a free leadership series that we put out to the world and um, had over 650 people sign up for it um, from seven different countries. And we did four workshops over um, a month long um, period. And um, it was fantastic. And um, it really, um, I, le- I grew a lot. I learned a lot from that working, you know, with that many people. And um, I got a lot of exposure. And so it's been interesting. A lot of organizations are actually pausing right now and saying, wait a minute, we really need to look at our talent because things are changing. And so through this summer and back half of the year, we've never been busier because I think companies are really recognizing they have to think about their talent in a new way and um, they're willing to do it. So Jen, if you don't company, we recruit no people come work for you, coaches and whatever the case may be, what methods do you use? Like is there certain verticals you go to all the time or how do you go about doing that? Yeah, when I go to recruit coaches, I have um, really high standards from their education. I only hire um, uh, coaches who meet the I, who are credentialed through the ICF, the International Coaching Federation, because it is the only coaching body that um, has an ethics and standards. Um, you know, to get in, you have to have over a hundred hours of coaching just to start to apply for your credentials. So, so pretty high standard to get in there is pretty hard to get that. Yeah, and you have to maintain it, and so you know, every three years you have to recertify and you have to go through mentor coaching. So anyhow, it's, it's, I know those who are going through that are getting some really excellent training. And then I reach out to the best coaches I know. And I say, who are the best coaches you know? Um, and I work with individuals who are educating coaches that work at universities or um, have their own um, you know, education platform for coaches. And I go out to them and ask for the best. Yes. So back to COVID-19, like like COVID-19 is hard and all is, is an equal playing field, but isn't it always a challenge in business or isn't there always something right going on that's challenging? Mm-hmm. And how do yeah. businesses overcome that challenge, whatever, whatever that case, whatever the challenge might be? Yeah. So there's always something going on. Um, rarely is it all of us the same problem at the same time. And how that affected you could have been a million different ways. It could have totally shut down your business to 
you know, make your business go, you know, on fire because maybe you sold medical equipment, maybe you're a mask developer or mask supplier and your business blew up. So everyone had something with it. What I would say though is what I found during COVID and, you know, anytime we have a problem, because there's always going to be something, is that we move into crisis management. And there is a time and a place for crisis management. And crisis management is highly directive. It's, you know, just do what I say. Don't ask questions. We all just have to do this. If building's on fire, get out of the building. Crisis management. But what I'm starting to see this year is because we crisis manage so much. And you have to think about the same thing, no matter what your problem is. If all of a sudden you've had kind of a run of some crisis in your company, people get in the habit of crisis management. And it doesn't work outside of that crisis. And so I'm seeing people that crisis manage for the first couple of months of this year, and now they're still doing it. They're still being highly um, assertive and not asking questions and demanding you do this and you do that and not even knowing what, you know, that person really thinks should be done. And so, you know, I think that's the biggest challenge if we've got crisis coming at us to crisis manage in that moment, but then go back to who we truly are as a leadership outside of that crisis. Jen, can you share your social media so people can reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so I'm at Jen Thornton ACC, and you can reach out to me there um, and you know connect with me, send me an instant message. Love to continue the conversation there. Hey, have you messed around those new LinkedIn stories yet? You know what? I just heard about them this week. And so I haven't even started. Yeah, yeah. I was on my, no, my phone no. yesterday. So I did a few yesterday, but I'm like, man, is this, this, yeah, like, is this another Instagram tag? And do I really have time to do another social media thing? Right. It's like, yeah, I'll tell you, I'm a little limited on social media. I do LinkedIn, but um, you won't see a lot of social media outside of that. It's just not how I work um, and not where I enjoy spending my time. And for our listeners, we have heard social media links on the show notes. You can find the show notes at www.cabinetshlblog.com. And be sure to share this episode with your friends and your network. So Jen, we'll come to the end of our talk. Can you give us any advice on wisdom or anything you want to talk about? I think that my advice, wisdom, I don't know what you want to call it, is that remember every word um, and every action that you take as a leader, you're creating someone's world. And that world expands outside of that moment. And so make sure as a leader that you are engaging people, you're empowering people, that you're, you're appreciating what someone brings to the table, even on their bad days, so that when they go back out um, outside of that, whether that's affecting your team or their life at home, just make sure that you understand the power of leadership. Just it resonates outside of that moment and that exchange. Dan, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was a great joy. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. Don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know?